Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, everybody? Jensen Cummings here. Thank you for tuning in. Talking with Jose Salazar, chef owner of three restaurants in Cincinnati, Ohio. Salazar, Mita's, as well as Goose and Elder. Now, Jose, to give you a little background here, he was born in Medellin, Colombia, raised in Queens, New York. And at a young age, you were a graffiti artist. I think that's so fascinating. So art was always a part of your life. And now you just have a new, a new medium, right? I think that's very interesting how art expresses in different ways for you personally. I love this current tidbit you gave us. One of the things you really want to do is take a summer, travel the country in a, quote, crappy yet reliable Winnebago with your wife and son. I think all Winnebagos have to be slightly crappy, yet you don't want to break down in the middle of, of Nebraska, right? Yeah, exactly. Just, just good enough to get me cross country, uh, but, but not, not too fancy that I feel like I don't want to scratch it up. I uh, heard that. And we're going to touch on the Winnebago a little bit uh, when we play our best served icebreaker game. But to give some context to your, uh, your career a little bit, at, at 18 – you were a bartender at eight and a half restaurants. You transitioned from working mostly front of house into the kitchen through culinary school and then really put yourself on a path working for a lot of different chefs and famed restaurant tours throughout. And then some of that crystallized for you working for chef Thomas Keller opening per se, and then becoming the exec sous at Bouchon. Now I think chef Keller for me personally is interesting and, uh, tell a little story in 2010 when betsy my wife and i were getting married uh, chef keller came through denver to do a book signing at williams sonoma the ad hoc cookbook on his way up to aspen food and wine my wife went got the book signed for a gift for me and mentioned to chef keller you know we're going to be out in appa for our honeymoon he says, are you going to go to any of my restaurants? He says, well, my husband has been, you know, back channeling through some of his restaurant connections to try to go to the French Laundry. No luck yet. He asks for a business card. She gives, her, gives him one of my business cards. Two days later, hmm. his office calls and says, Chef Keller has a table for you. Right? We go wow. to – I know. It's crazy. And, and, and just to give even more, like, paint a, a broader picture, we go to the restaurant unbelievable experience. I mean, life-changing, no doubt. Uh, and then he was off that day, if there's such a thing for a guy like Thomas Keller. Mm -hmm. And they call him towards the end of our meal because he lives right down there. And he comes just, I mean, in street clothes just to show us around the kitchen. And right, we wow. see the video. I mean, come on. we see, we yeah. see the video of per se, right. Cause mm -hmm. there's live stream video mm -hmm. going in yep. per se kitchen. You can see the French laundry and vice versa. And that to me is everything that works. And when it doesn't is where we miss in, in our industry. Hospitality. Hosp I mean, hospitality. Yeah, for sure. A hundred percent hospitality. The guy is at the top. And he's like, hey, let me get a table for this random person who got a book signed in Denver, Colorado. And let me go down there on my day off and, and, and show them a little bit of hospitality. I'll never forget that. And I think it's one of the most impactful things. And so that is unbelievable. Yeah. Now, you kind, of, you kind of knew that, right, about guests from being out of the front, working with Chef Keller. Talk to me a little bit about that piece. Is that something that just became – crystallized as a mantra for you guys is hospitality. Like how does that manifest working within that company? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think the word that comes to mind working with them is, is um, experience because, you know, really, and it's, it's odd because it's a chef driven restaurant. Right. And 
um, the food almost is secondary, you know, and it's really, I mean, it really is. It's, it's about the overall experience and not just the food or the wine. Um, certainly the service is, is a priority, but it's about, you know, giving people that overall experience and making memories. And it sounds like that's exactly what they did for you and your wife. Yeah. And so, and everybody I've talked to within the industry or, or outside the industry, I tell that story a lot. That thing has been, that thing has seen some miles and that's the value of brand. Like he will always have, no, no matter what, there's always that story out there and there's probably hundreds and hundreds of stories like that. And that's how you build a strong brand and, and a legacy. So I can always, always appreciate that. Now in 2008, you had the opportunity to move to Cincy. That's a big jump from, some of the places you work in New York to Cincinnati, a much smaller market. And then you, you parlayed that into 2013 opening Salazar's 2015 opening Mita's 2019 goose and elder comes to fruition. And I mean, since opening your restaurants nominated for James beer, best chef, great lakes in 2016, 17, 18 and 19, seeing a strong trend here of just people recognizing <laughs> your work, your hard work, uh, your skill, your artistry, right? Yet your proudest moment is is very simple. You say, opening Salazar with your wife, Anne. Talk to me about that, just the simple thing of open restaurant, which is no simple thing, but the feeling that you have to that. Yeah, I mean, you and I were talking um, earlier about, you know, running a marathon. And to me, that's kind of what, opening a restaurant it's like it's um you know it takes so much work and effort and planning and and training right so i mean you you kind of think back to all the things that you learned throughout your career and the culmination of all that experience tells you okay we're ready to do it on our own and and even then it's still like one of the most frightening scary things you're going to do and for us we we basically funded it ourselves. We took whatever little bit of money we made from the sale of our home in New York and um, put it towards this restaurant and really did it on a pretty tight budget. And, and so that, you know, was the big plunge and financially uh, overwhelming. So, you know, being, being with her and, us kind of leaning on one another and supporting one another and uh, kind of helping each other run that marathon and picking each other up off the floor to say, just keep going, keep going. And when we finally got the doors open, it felt like, you know, we'd been doing it for so long. It took, took nearly two years to get the restaurant like fully um, built out and, and off the ground. And so, um, you know, obviously as a, as a cook, as a chef, that's, somewhere in the back of your mind that's a dream of you you know almost every young chef is to say hey someday I'd like to have my own place where I can fulfill my vision and so being able to do that with with her her help um, which I wouldn't have been able to do without her help was a, a big deal for me all right I like that uh, now we're gonna play one of our, our best served icebreaker games a game that I'm calling where to go in the Winnebago and, and this is for you. We're going to start planning your trip now. So he's going to be recorded. He's already mapping it out. We're going to put pins in the map and now he's, you got to hold him to it. So what we're going to do is talk about some different food regions, some cities, some States known for iconic dishes, iconic cuisines in comparison to other places that may or may not be at that echelon. Right? So you're going to tell us of the two places that I mentioned, which of those you would prefer to visit and eat at? Sound good? All right, let's do it. All right, now we've got to start in New York. We've got to start with pizza. So if you're going in your Winnebago and you're heading to go get pizza, are you going to New York, which is likely with your roots there, or are you going to New Haven, Connecticut, to go eat pizza. Let's see. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm going to say New York. However, 
I, I've actually never been to New Haven, Connecticut, and had the opportunity to try the pizza there. And it's it's been on my list of places to go. So, so you know what? No, you know, I, I think I'm going to say New Haven actually because it's a that's the whole idea of getting in the Winnebago is going places that I haven't been and seeing seeing new things and trying new stuff. That that is great. That's, that's exactly how I wanted that work out. Yes. Either you had New Haven pizza before, and you, and the, the the debate starts because there is a legitimate debate. Having eaten pizza mm-hmm. in every borough, having eaten pizza all over the country, and making mm-hmm. that thirty minute uh, train ride to the New Haven, I was impressed. Like, really impressed. I went to the Big Five, the the Pepe's, the Sally's, Bar, Moderns, who parties, mm-hmm. and I was really impressed. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, I think eating pizza in Brooklyn, is it feels like breathing air. So, Lucali in Brooklyn <laughs> probably gets the top nod for me. But, man, so New Haven. And, honestly, you, you probably go to both. You know, stop off, go, go hit a couple good diners in Queens, get the pizza in Brooklyn or in the city, and then hit New Haven. Why not, right? Yeah, they're close enough. So, so uh, barbecue. All right, you're getting you're getting out of the city. You're heading to barbecue. Are you going to North Carolina for whole hog with the vinegar, or are you going to Texas for some brisket, some beef? Yeah, I, I'm gonna definitely say the whole hog. Uh, the vinegar is what gets me. You know, I love I love when you put the acidity with the fatty pork. Um, and, but you know, there's nothing wrong with Texas. Got lots of friends in Texas and, uh, I love the barbecue down there too. Uh, whole hog in Carolinas is where I'm going. Yeah. I like that. Any other spots in the country, Memphis ribs, burnt ends and sauce in Kansas city that, that are you know, interesting to you? I was in Memphis a few weeks ago and, uh, yeah, really enjoyed the barbecue there. Um, but yeah, I, I haven't been to Kansas City, so that would definitely be a stop in the Winnebago. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm definitely leaning towards the mustard and the vinegar uh, on the East Coast. Yeah, I'm with you. It's the it's the barbecue that I see the least. Like really, mm-hmm. if you're in the Carolinas, it's religion practically, mm-hmm. and outside of that. You don't see it a lot. Even the places that aren't in these iconic, these regions, these cities, these states where they have their signature barbecue, you see barbecue in other places and they kind of will pull, they'll have some brisket, then they'll do some pulled pork, things like that. But the whole hog, you just don't see it enough. So I am with you 100%. When people ask me what's missing in a food market, it's one of the top things I tell them. Whole hog barbecue, go do it. It's funny, my my chef de cuisine is, uh, putting a business plan together to open up a whole hog barbecue restaurant in Cincinnati. And so I'm, I'm pushing hard to help them make that happen. Cause selfishly that's, <laughs> that's the place I want to eat at. I you know? sign off on that. Another reason for me to get back to Cincinnati and for us to uh, cook together and eat some food together. I love hearing that. Now yeah, we're going to go get some tacos. Are you going to Los Angeles or San Diego? It's it's pretty close. It's a two-hour trip. You probably go to both. But uh, talk to me about tacos a little bit. Or is there somewhere we don't know about that we need to be hitting up some tacos? Oh, man. Um, you know, so I didn't really notice much difference from the taco scene in L.A. and San Diego. So I'm not really sure if I can differentiate. But uh, in recent memory, the best tacos I had were at a place in Austin called Descanda or Descada. I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it, they were little tiny things. I mean, like two biters and they just blew me away. It was just one of those little food carts on the side of the road. Um, a lote salad that was like so unexpected and delicious. And so I don't know right now in my brain, Austin, Texas has, has, uh, the crown for the taco capital of, of the country. I like it. And if you're in Austin, you can get tacos and you get the barbecue two for one, two for one. <laughs> right. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> uh, I Save dig that. Yes. San, San Diego and LA are, are funny being, 
uh, from there, you see these micro nuances uh, that you may not see, just like with any like regional cuisine. Uh, if there if there is a, a major difference, you see a lot more seafood with fish in San Diego, and you saw, mm-hmm. see a lot more <laughs> land animal, land and air, I should say, a lot more pollo and, and carne de res, like things like that uh, in <laughs> L.A. But, yeah, and they're very much like, don't get them confused. <laughs> it's, uh, it's be- okay, it's, it's I, didn't know that. I didn't know there was a beef there. Yeah, I didn't know that. Oh yeah, right. man. Oh yeah. They get they get into it. It's kind of like saying Mexican food is Mexican food. Or I'm sure Colombian food is Colombian food. That's just not the case. I mean, you go, let's we're staying in tacos. You go from Baja to Yucatan to Norteño to Jalisco to Oaxaca. That's a whole different ballgame. So I love the idea of the regional and I'm super hungry and jealous that you are gonna be in a Winnebago and any any summer now. It's coming. As soon as as soon as you stop opening restaurants, you never know, man. Years, I might, you know, I might just knock on your door one day, you know, be like, "Hey, what's driving through Denver?" And here I am. <laughs> I'll be ready. I'll be ready. All right. Now let's get into your story a little bit. Want to hear for you the first person who really had an impact on you and kind of who they were, what they meant to you, and maybe some of how you're taking what they instilled in you and applying it now as a chef as a husband, a father, an owner of businesses, an icon in Cincinnati. Talk to us about that person. And I, I got to say my mom's, you know, mother was a sing, single parent and worked three, sometimes four jobs just to, you know, get food on the table and pay the bills and, uh man we came when we immigrated to the u.s she didn't speak a lick of english and uh worked in a factory um sewing undergarments and uh yeah man got an education she ended up getting her master's degree after um i think maybe like 20 years of being in the in the states and um yeah so she's always been a, a huge inspiration for me and and a role model and somebody that uh that i definitely look up to yeah that immigrant story is so powerful and it's that second generation the first generation of of america the expectation is high you are like now in the land of opportunity and it clearly looking back now you took full advantage of that you know in 20 years to go through school i mean tell me how that kind of dedication that kind of hard work and work ethic and vision for what it means to like be a part of something as 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 being in the United States and coming and immigrating from Colombia. Like, how do you take that with you? How do you pay that forward? I mean, for me, it's just not taking it for granted. You know, not taking anything for granted um, because you know we do have so many opportunities uh, allowed to us. Um, you know, as Americans, but you know, just as humans, man, I think a lot of people don't, uh, don't realize that, you know, it's, a lot of it is up to you to go out and, and get it. You know what I mean? Like, like go re- reach for it. You might fail. Fuck it. You know, just don't, you know, don't be scared to try. And, and, and definitely, yeah, seeing my mother, um, do a lot of things and fail at a lot of things. Um, but, you know, keep, keep going. That's, certainly um was a motivation all right so mom's working her ass off giving you the opportunity now you're a graffiti artist you know what's what's, <laughs> what's, not, what's yeah, mom think about that, like that. <laughs> uh yeah she didn't like that so uh, there i used to also be very into clothing i used to back when i was growing up polo ralph lauren clothes was was a, a thing that we all you know we went out and got as much polo and, and Tommy Hilfiger gear as we could. And she knew that I was very into it. And she threatened me. She said, if I see your tag on a wall again, she's, I'm going to throw your clothes away. And, and I was like, no, nah, I promise. I stopped. Right. <laughs> I stopped it. I, I, I don't do that anymore. And, and, you know, so I would go and tag places where I didn't think she would see it. 
And sure enough, she saw it. And next thing I know, I see my clothes in the garbage, man. And I was, I was pissed. And she didn't let me get it out, man. She threw it away. And, uh, and there was, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of gear that ended up in the garbage because, because I was a knucklehead and I didn't listen to my mother. Ooh, man, mom, give me that kick-ass, that, that she, tough love. She was hardcore. She was hardcore, man. If she put me on punishment, it was like to the minute. If she said, you're punished for a week, and, you know, she put me on punishment at 3.15 in the afternoon, it was like a whole week. It was like 3.15 the next week on that day that I was able to go outside. <laughs> she was no joke. Yes. She's hardcore. Yeah, I like it. I like hearing that. Mom, keeping you on task. So you have that <laughs> foundation. Strong, right. strong female figure, which I think is important. You have, you're grounded. You're an artist. Now talk to me about kind of what happens next. What's the next phase where you really start to understand yourself? You're at bartending. What is that next phase of your life and who's there to kick your ass more or to motivate you, inspire you? What is what is that and who is that mm. for you? Yeah, so, yeah, basically they, they kind of tie together a little bit with moms. Um, I graduated high school and uh, I didn't go to college because I wasn't really sure of what I wanted to do. And I, I just knew that I didn't want to go and spend a bunch of money on college without really having any uh, definitive goals. So uh, mom said, well, all right, then you're going to have to get a job, of course. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I know, but I don't know what to do. And she called up one of her friends who owned a restaurant, and I never, never imagined myself, you know, I didn't grow up really in love with food. So I'm not one of those, you know, guys that at like 12 knew I wanted to be a chef and, you know, watch Julia Child on TV and all that. I mean, um, I love those stories. I think they're great. They're, they're super dope when you hear somebody that knew what they wanted to do at that age. But, um, yeah, anyway, so she called her friend, his name's Walter, and he had this restaurant called uh, Eight and a Half or Otto Mezzo in Midtown Manhattan. It was uh, this really kind of uh, grandiose Italian-American place. Um, It was named after the Federico Fellini movie. And uh, it's just a really beautiful spot. And she's like, hey, let me call him and see if – he has any jobs available. So I thought, you know, I'm going to be like a bus boy or whatever. And I went in and talked to him and he's like, you know what? He's like, actually, I have a bartending position available. And I was like, I don't know the first thing about bartending. I'm 18. Like I'm just a kid. And he's like, don't worry. He's like, I'll train you. He's like, everybody drinks martinis and wine. He's like, that's <laughs> he's like, if you learn how to make a, a perfect martini. He's like, you'll be fine. And yeah, next thing I know, man, I'm, I'm bartending in this, like really fancy Italian restaurant in Midtown. And um, and then I continued to do that for a few years. I was bartender and a waiter for on and off for about three or four years. And it's throughout that time in the, in the front of the house that I realized that I really had a, a passion for food and, and a love. I, be, I developed this love affair with, with food and was extremely curious and constantly people peeking my head in the door of the kitchen going, holy shit, what's that? You know, and learning how to make bread and um, pasta and all those things that, uh, were super intriguing. And are you still connected with uh, Walter? You know, I lost touch with him uh, a couple years ago. Um, one of the people that I met while working at Eight and a Half was a guy by the name of Paul Zappala, who ended up being, I guess, a mentor. And he was the executive chef at the restaurant. And he passed away a couple years ago. And he and I stayed very, very good friends up until he until he died recently. And um, through him, I would, on, on occasion, uh, talk to Walter. But since Paul passed, uh, Walter and I have lost touch. But, but uh, Paul was really the one of the driving forces for me um becoming a chef he's he's the guy who kind of said oh so you're interested in food and began to teach me and and was really uh somebody that i could go to and ask questions 
And what, let's talk to us more about that relationship there, you know, like mentor taking you under his wing, uh, the first kind of inspirational moments of taste this, an ingredient you never had before, learn about this dish. Uh, what, what, mm. was that, what was that interaction like? And how, how do you take that with you now? And is that important to you to pass that on as a chef now? Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, you know, kind of like I mentioned, he, he, he would, he would go and he'd be working on a recipe and he'd come out to the bar and he'd let me try it and he'd say, Hey, here's, here's what I'm thinking. And he, he could see that, you know, I was, um, that I was very interested. And he told me, I, I didn't know. He's like, but I, I he's like, you got a palate, you know, how to, how to taste food. He's like, you understand it. Your, you know, your mind works well for it. And he honed some of the, I guess, uh, innate or, you know, some of the like, uh, uh, fundamentals, yeah, the palate, the, yeah, the fundamentals. And I guess, you know, he helped me, uh, understand the theory of cooking before I could, you know, before I even picked up a, a saute pan. Um, yeah, so it was, I mean, he was just so passionate about food himself and, and it was infectious. So if he came out and, you know, started talking about something, um, he couldn't help but listen because, you know, he made, he made it sound like the most interesting thing in the world because to him it was, you know, so food was supremely special and important to him and the relationship between food and, and feeding people, you know, that to him was, um, a very important uh, part of being a chef. And, and I feel like it's the same way for me. I'm, I'm uh, always very interested in whether people are enjoying themselves or not. Um, and that kind of, you know, I think goes back to what we were saying about Chef Keller and, and his philosophies. I, I think it's, it's about an experience. And Paul taught me that, you know, through making food, you make people happy. And, uh, and that's what something that has always, uh, driven me to, to be a restaurateur and, and to be a chef. Yeah. And still something I think that's very meaningful in cooking. Cooking is tactile. You cook with your hands, but really to create and cook, it's in your head. It's in your, your experiences. It's in your soul. It's in your palate you have all those pieces, then it just channels through your hands. And I think that's an interesting way to look at it uh, that clearly was instilled in you by him. Do you find yourself kind of channeling those interactions you had with him? And, and how are you trying oh. to instill that in the cooks and chefs that you work with throughout the rest of your career and, and currently? Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Paul, um, has, you know, like I said, we were really, really good friends and has always been someone that's like, you know, right at, at the forefront of my mind when it comes to food. He's somebody that I think about a lot. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately he passed. Um, but I still, uh, I still think about all the things that he taught me, man. He was a, he was a good dude. Yeah. I hear that. All right. So you have this foundation now you're thinking about the kitchen more. We talked a little bit about how you make that transition, the culinary school, start really pushing yourself, your craft, your, now in, in Cincy, and I think something you mentioned to me was very interesting, and I think your perspective, having gone to the, having been in the front of the house, understanding the guest experience, that interaction, because in the kitchen, often guests are nameless, faceless people that make crazy modifications and send food back. But for you, they were, they were people you had relationships, right? So talk to me a little bit about that, and if there's some people that, that specifically you remember or just the archetype of the type of people that have an influence on you. Let me try to communicate that to your, your cooks currently. Yeah. So when I, when I moved to Cincinnati, I actually became the chef of a hotel called the Cincinnati hotel. And we had a chef's table in the kitchen. You know, I think it's at 12 people and it was, um, it was a little bit weird at first because I'm, I'm somewhat shy and it was kind of strange to have people sitting in the kitchen kind of just staring at you. But, um, after, after a little bit, I got used to it and there was a, uh, a group of guests, um, that came in one night 
and um, the the couple who uh, gathered everybody together, their name are Chris and Z, and they um, they were so nice and so appreciative, and we ended up spending you know hours and hours chatting after the meal was over, and they were just um, you know asking so many questions and really. I guess in love with what they had experienced and um we we hit it off and we became really good friends and are still great friends till till this day um but after after their table um I gained even more I think appreciation for the guests and and being able to you know kind of bridge the gap between uh the chef and the guests and and seeing, you know, having them in the kitchen and watching them enjoy themselves was um, was a pretty cool experience. And uh, and so now all my kitchens are open kitchens, and I can see uh, very clearly, you know, whether people are having a good time or not, and I can hear them and they can hear us. And I think that's important because it it feels more like you're inviting somebody into your home versus, you know, this sort of divider and there's and and it it feels um more communal yeah and it it creates that connection for your staff across the board i think it breaks down these you know the dividers like you said the walls between physically the space but Mm -hmm. really emotionally as well they have a new they look at that person they can see the in their eyes that i am going to cook this for you and that, yeah, and that's, so that's, that's powerful. Right. So it's a kind of like answer that second part of your question is like, how does it impact the cooks and the staff? It's yeah, it's exactly what you just said. Um, there's so many instances where people will come up to the, to the pass or, you know, where for, for those who don't know the pass is where the food, you know, makes its way up from the kitchen and then someone picks it up and takes it to the dining room. But and people will come up and and be like, oh my god, thank you guys! Like, you know, that was so amazing. And they'll they'll want to you know take selfies with the cooks. And it's like, man, you know that that leaves a really um, a good feeling in in a cook's you know heart at the end of the night. because then you know it's like it's a hard job. You know that, Justin. I mean, it's it's crazy, right? We we cooks sometimes don't get the uh, the appreciation that they deserve. But when, when somebody comes up and even just says thank you and just in passing as they're walking out the door, I mean, that can make somebody's night. So it's a, it's a really cool feeling. Yeah. And I think you're also setting up your team in the kitchen to eventually be better operators. I think, you know, that your experience out front completely changes the way that you view your restaurant whole. And sometimes you know, a chef-driven restaurant-type concept. Sometimes if, chef, if we've spent too much time in the kitchen, we're in a little bit of a bubble and kind of forget that the guest is the most important. And so you're instilling that in them. And I'd like to touch on that. You mentioned your chef who's who's uh, interesting, interested in looking to open Whole Hog Barbecue. Talked about some of those interactions you're creating with the team. Talk to me a little bit more about the teams that you have right now and kind of what they're meaning and if there's any individuals that just – Man, need need a shout out right now. Yeah, well, Andy Heiner is the guy we're talking about who wants to open up the barbecue restaurant, and he's been my chef for oh, right around five years now at Salazar. Um, so he came and started working there about a year after we opened. And that first year, we had a lot of turnover. Um, I was um, trying to find the right fit to to help me run that kitchen and Andy was you know just this guy you know sent from above man he came and we had so many things in common I, I joke that we finished each other's sentences culinarily because you know I could start explaining to him how I wanted to do something and he would finish off my sentence by saying okay this is this is probably what you want or and and we've had this tremendous working relationship um for the last five years and now he's ready to branch out on his own and i'm of course gonna miss him because he's 
you know, uh, like I said, he's, he's been so instrumental in helping run the restaurant, but I'm also pushing really hard to help him out and help him get financing and giving him all, you know, the, the teachings are all <laughs> letting him know what not to do <laughs> because, you know, uh, we all make so many mistakes when we first open up and he's, I'm sure he's going to make his own set of mistakes and, uh, he's going to, he's going to fuck up a hundred times before he figures out how to do something. But, you know, if I can help him not make the same mistakes that I did, then, you know, it's going to make it a, a little bit easier for him. Yeah. Or at so, least listen to him and be a sounding board when he does inevitably yeah. fuck something up, you know, that's important too. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and just letting them know that I'll be there for them. I think that's important because a lot of the guys that, you know, that um, I leaned on early in my career and asked advice to, you know, that just just hearing them say, hey, here's here's some advice. Here's how I would do this. And whether I took the advice or not, um, just knowing that I had somebody that I could I could call upon was was huge and critical. I think in, in the success of the restaurant because, um, yeah, you know, you, you kind of rely on some of those, those people's input to, to guide you along, even just emotionally, so it, you know, probably a lot of time more emotionally than anything. That's really what it is. Mm-hmm. It's like you said, tough. Mm-hmm. It's you're getting, you're, you're in the grind and you're getting ground down. So being able to have that, uh, that support system is pretty key. And sometimes it's okay to not be okay in an industry and that doesn't get talked about enough. So I think a lot of credit to you for trying to cultivate that and being willing to build people up to the point where they're so good, they're ready to leave. You know, like that's hard to do, but I think it's so important if you're going to continue to be a pillar of that community and building up people. So uh, much recognition for that to you, to Andy, to the whole team that you've kind of had. Uh, now, as always, we like to talk if best served about those unsung hospitality heroes. We've talked about a couple people that have had that impact on you, but specifically there's one person that we want to talk about as kind of your nominee as that unsung hospitality hero. Talk to me about Joshua Schwartz. Yeah, Josh was my chef at Per Se. Um, he, you know, is a a veteran of you know he worked for thomas keller um i think over 10 years and um just one of the the smartest culinary minds that i've ever had the pleasure of working with and he was tough he was really tough i mean he was uh you know i remember when i first started up per se i i remember going home many nights going i fucking hate this guy i'm like i'm gonna fucking punch him in the face i can't stand working with him and <laughs> he was just he was that I'm ta- hard i'm gonna tag up his car right yeah <laughs> yeah right um but then you know after i kind of looked at why he was tough it was because he wanted to you know teach us all how to be better chefs he he had he was demanding of himself and he expected the same out of others and i you know now in retrospect i can't fault that at all and and i love him for it and i think if if he wasn't so tough i don't know that i would be um that i would have you know gone the extra mile to to learn how to do something correctly or you know to be on time or to do some of the intangibles that it takes to, to be successful in, in, in a restaurant or in life in general. And, um, yeah. And, and so I really, really appreciate everything that he, he did for me. Yeah. People like Joshua need more recognition and attention for sure for what they've meant for, you know, whole, a whole generation of chefs. Now, I'm interested, how do you balance, right? Cause we're, not great at balance in this industry. And I know that's important to you. How do you balance the toughness, the intensity with the care and support that you've talked about as well? Where, where's that balance and hell, where does it miss the mark sometimes? And, and, and it's a challenge. Talk to us about that. Well, it's such a 
super fine line, man. It's razor thin. Uh, you know, I, I think earlier in my career, I was too tough. I think I I was definitely a hothead, and I had that reputation. Um, and I think some of that comes out of out of fear, you know, knowing that you're being given this responsibility of running a restaurant or a kitchen. And in this case, you know, when I got my first executive chef position, it was running a hotel, and it was quite overwhelming. And I think I let a lot of those stresses take over and I was too, too tough at times. And I've uh, apologized to those people that I was an asshole to. And I think most of them have forgiven me at this point, but, uh, but then, you know, you don't, you can't be too, too easy on people either. I think what I always say to them when I'm, now I think I'm fair. I think I'm a very fair chef. I think uh, I still am very demanding and expect a lot out of people, but um, I'm not going to come down on you um, unless you've, you know, really kind of um, let off the gas and, and have given up and, and aren't trying your best. And what I tell them is that, that to me, if, if I'm, if I don't hold you accountable, then I'm doing, you as the as the employee a disservice i'm letting you down because i'm not letting i'm not giving you the motivation to be the best chef or the best server or the best bartender or the best manager or whatever i'm i'm letting you coast and you're you're not fulfilling your potential um and and really i think most people get that i think sometimes they think that i'm full of shit but honestly i'm not um of course I want them to, to do well for me, for me. You know, I, I definitely, you know, the better you are as a server and, and the better you treat the guests and ring in everything correctly, then obviously the better my business does. But if, if I don't, you know, hold you accountable for when you aren't doing those things right, then you're going to think to some degree, you, whether it's consciously or subconsciously that, it's okay to just be mediocre. And I don't, I don't think that that's fair to you as the employee. Yeah. That accountability fair is a great word. I think for that. And, and I think mistakes clearly are okay to you. It's letting off the gas. It's that they maybe the care, the intent yep. really, really matters, I think. And so that leads us right into what I think is a great quote. I always like to end with a quote, take us out into the world, try to make it a better place. And it really speaks to kind of some of the sentiment that you were just mentioning. You say, excuse me, Winston Churchill says, but great guy to quote. And then this is a mantra that you use, and I'm sure it's still in others. And he said, to improve is to change. To be perfect is to change often. What does that really mean to you? Well, you know, that also relates back to when I worked for Chef Keller and Chef Keller, um, I'm sure you've probably heard him say this before, but he would say that there is no such thing as perfection. It's, it's the striving to be perfect that makes the man, the chef, the person. And, and just knowing that, um, that perfection is unattainable, uh, but you should consistently try to get there. And, and do everything in your power to be the best that you can. And, and also, I guess, even you know, more, the way I've kind of uh, taken Churchill's quote in, to heart is you know, that we're, we're going we're gonna to grow, we're going to learn, we're going to uh, evolve as people, and, and so we have to change. You know, we can't, can't be stagnant, and whether that's, you know, my menu at the restaurant, if, if I never change anything, then, you know, it's going to get boring. It's going to get stale. Um, if I don't change the way I interact with my guests or with my employees, um, then, then I'm not growing, then they're not growing. Then, um, you know, we're, we're not, I guess, getting better. Cause I mean, that's really the goal. That should be everybody's goal in, in everything that you do is you, you want to do it better today than you did yesterday. And, um, you know, so even early on, I worked for, like you said earlier, some really great chefs. And one of them that also, uh, stands out was, 
uh, one of the sous chefs at, at John George, and he was peeling these radishes so intently, and and I would, you know, just stare at him and go, well, what the fuck is like, it's just it's just a radish, right? And you know, I went over and and asked him about it, and he's like, I I try to peel the radish better than I did yesterday. Every day I try to peel that radish just a little bit better. And, and so that, you know, I guess all of it all ties in together. It's, it's about every day trying to improve. Yeah. That, that intent, as we've mentioned a couple of times matters and that focus and dedication and in a crazy industry, you got to have those things that keep you grounded to that. And it's the people around you. It's that evolution. It's that drive towards the evolution so appreciate that quote. Appreciate what you're doing. Everyone listening, I'm sure, got some some nuggets of wisdom, and uh, really appreciate you being part of the show, telling your story. Thanks, Anthony, man. I appreciate you having me on, man. Uh, Cheers. Fun. So we've been talking to Jose Salazar, hearing about his journey, the people that have impacted him along the way, and he gave a big shout out to Josh Schwartz, who we got on the line now. They work together at Per Se, where Josh was the private dining chef, and Jose was just a, a young snot-nosed cook trying to make his way in this crazy fucking <laughs> industry. Josh, yeah. thanks for talking to us a little bit. Appreciate you. Absolutely. So for everyone Good listening, I'd like here. to just give them some little quick hitters on you, just give them a, a little bit of your background, and then talk about that time of per se and why that was so formative for, uh, you know, now such a prolific chef like Jose. So tell us where, where were you born and raised? I was born on Long Island. Um, I only spent a few, few years there up until, you know, I was probably like, I think I was nine years old when we moved to Pennsylvania. Um, and, uh, yeah, so born in New York and raised uh, just north of Philly in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Okay. Okay. And so first job in the industry, how old you were you? What was the spot? Well, I started picking strawberries in some fields when I was 14 and I didn't like that. And my dad said, well, won't you uh, get a job working in the kitchen? Cause I was interested in cooking. And uh, he got me a job at a small cafe in La Hoska, Pennsylvania and Peddler's village is a real touristy area. And uh, my boss was kind of a drunk and left me alone a lot. So I ended up learning a lot about running a kitchen by myself. Just thrown and, uh, into the fire, huh? I was thrown into the fire. I mean, luckily I was making sandwiches and French fries and that's about it. I didn't have anything, you know, super technique driven to do. But um, yeah, I, uh, I made it happen. And that didn't drive you away from saying, fuck this. I don't want no part of this kitchen. It drove you deeper into it, huh? Yeah, I was mad at my dad when he found out what was going on and pulled me out of there. I was like, what? What? I was liking that. <laughs> I hear that. The, damn that good parenting. First, he gets you into the job. You fall in love with it. Yeah. It pulls you out. So then how many yeah, years now get... have you been in the industry? Oh, so I started really, you know, cooking probably at 15 and I'm 45. So 30 years. It's just... A soldier, huh? Just fighting the good Grinding fight. Grinding it out, man. Grinding it's, it out. Yep. It's a grind for sure. Well, we'll talk a as little bit more. As we used to say, bang. As we, as we used to say uh, when I worked at Bouchon, bang in the chunch. <laughs> That's good stuff. So uh, talk to us just a little bit about what you're doing uh, currently. Uh, currently, I've been working for a family-run winery called Delgado Vineyards um, from the Napa Valley. We've got three properties. Um, we have a pretty extensive culinary program that I started from the ground up. We cure all our own meats. Um, we make everything in-house. We have a pretty big estate garden that we use all our vegetables uh, that we use for events and for our daily service out of our own garden. Um, it's a pretty cool program. That's that's so Napa. I love it there. You feel that, feel that energy from... We'll talk it's about. so Napa that I it's so Napa I have to live in Sonoma to get away from it. I I heard that, <laughs> Chef. I heard that for sure. I remember going to the the French Laundry and the garden, and you could just you just sense it. You just knew you were in Napa. It's a special place for sure. It it definitely is. And Sonoma, 
Man, we had a great meal. My wife and I on our honeymoon at uh, Cyrus, Doug Keen's okay. place. Uh, unbelievable. The hospitality in uh, in wine country is no joke. So, yeah, it's it's different. It's weird because you know Napa Napa is very very you know a little bit more upscale, and Sonoma County is a little bit more laid back. So I like living in the laid back part and working in the upscale part. Yeah, then Mendocino is a whole other thing. Oh, that's, yeah, we could talk about that for a whole podcast. Man. <laughs> that's a whole nother podcast. All right. So per se, this is where it really went down. Uh, just give us this quick little background on kind of where you were at as far as your progression within per se, how long you've maybe been there when, uh, when Jose was, was coming up and, and that time that clearly was so important to him. Well, you know, I, I was set with the task of setting up a private dining um, program for a fine dining restaurant. Um, per se, in the Time Warner building. And, you know, it was a pretty big undertaking. Um, you know, Thomas Keller Restaurant Group was growing pretty big. And they had never had a, uh, a you know, kind of like a, a private, private dining sector in the company yet. So I was kind of blazing a new trail. Um, so I was looking for some, I was looking for some strong people to help me kind of get that off the ground. And, a uh, gentleman by the name of Max Hansen, who was one of the very first chefs I ever worked for when I was pretty young, like first chef wearing a chef coat that like was legit. Um, and he had told me that a friend of a friend, Jose was looking for work in New York and made the connection for me. And I made that connection with, with Jose and we instantly had a great conversation Um you know, it was a while ago. I don't remember. It was over the phone in person. I'm sure we met in person at some point. Um, and uh, I went ahead and hired him and, um, you know, took that risk. You know, it's always a risk when you're hiring someone, how they're going to work out. And he was that guy that ended up being that guy that I could just keep adding on to. And he would just keep coming through for me. It yeah, that's what I want to get into right there is is that trust and confidence is, is two words we talk about a lot. And, you know, being in that leadership position, clearly he looked at, as, at you as a mentor figure still all these years later. I'm very right. interested in that dynamic, the relationship, how important it was for you to be able to lean on him. You know, what it was that was for you, the way you supported him or, you know, kicked his ass, whatever that was. Talk to us a little bit about that relationship and what it means to you to, to be a leader, to be a mentor in the kitchen. Well, there's always a little ass kissing, but or ass kissing, not ass ass kicking. Um, maybe a little of both, actually. Little both, little but, both, yeah. <laughs> but um, you know, when I brought Jose on, he really had no idea. We were trying to take, you know, French Laundry and move it to the East Coast, so we were trying to take all those techniques and concepts. And here's a guy who had never worked for Thomas Keller before. So, you know, that's a, it's a pretty large undertaking to take someone who's never worked for a big-name chef like that and say, okay, we're, we're trying to duplicate something you've never experienced before. So you gotta you got to follow my every move here. You know, when I make a move, I need you to follow me. And from the very beginning, I had a crew of probably five guys. He was the guy that just was – he was my shadow. He was right there. Everything I taught him – he did, and he did exactly the same way. And I realized that I was able to recognize that early, so I knew that I I could spend some time mentoring him. Um, I mean, obviously, I spent time mentoring all the people that worked for me, um, bringing them all up. But he was somebody that I was like, I identified him as somebody who I could trust. And he eventually started taking over the work that needed to get done in the morning before I even showed up. So, you know, Jose took basically an AM call me position, um, eventually AM, you know, almost a Sue position. So I would be like, this is what needs to get done before I even step in the door. And I'd step in the door and I'd have to look over what he did. And, and you know, we built a relationship on that because there were times where there are failures and there were times where there are successes. And we spoke about all those. And then over time, those failures went away and the successes became you know, more evident. And that that's where the trust was. Yeah, that's, that's pretty clear when you see that person that's, they're just a sponge and you called it a shadow where 
they were just able to mimic you and then anticipate you, I think is important. Let's get into that side of the equation for you is important to sure. find those people and be a mentor. I think a lot of people listening that are at that line cook level that are figuring out how to take it to the next level. So let's get into that a little bit more for Jose or for anybody that you worked with or you're working with currently, what is it you want to really, really see out of them? And, uh, and what are the things well, you, you say? Know, like, if you're going to be a cook, if you want to be a chef from a cook, these are the things that you've got to be able to accomplish. You've got to be able to show your chef. I go, I go back to like what some mentors in my career had told me about that. You know, take Thomas Keller, for instance, he always told me if you want a job then you should start doing it before it's your job. So when that job becomes available, you're, you're the choice. Right. It was uh, make it yours and someday it will be right. Well, that's more of like, you know, taking care of the equipment, right? If you, if you take care of everything, like it's yours, then one day it will be. Um, but it's more of, he was, he was trying to emphasize you want to, you want to cook fish and you're on canapé. Well, start cooking fish, start grabbing those pans and moving around. And the chef's going to see that. And as soon as, He's ready to make a move. He's like, this guy's ready to go there. He's already doing it. Taking that initiative. So, taking the initiative, yeah, and really kind of saying, you know what, this is what I want. I'm going to grab it now. I'm going to get in there, and I'm going to – eventually, you know, when you're, when you're in a management role and you're in charge of moving the pawns around the chessboard and you see guys that are already making the right moves for the positions you want to make changes with, it becomes real clear who's going where. And when that happens and you're a manager and you have that opportunity, it makes your life so much easier when you have people that are, they're, they're ready to move into that next spot. Yeah. Do the, do the job before you get the job. Exactly. Yep. Right here. I love that. All and right, the other, so... the other, the other mentor that I had that told me something as well was when you take that step up, never take a step back. And that was Jan Birnbaum always told me that he said, if you go from being uh, Comey to a line cook. Don't ever become a Comey again. If you become a line cook to a chef de partie, then don't become a line cook again. Stay a chef de partie or chef de partie to being a sous chef. You take that step and don't come back. Okay. So once you make that move, don't take the step back. It's interesting. I'm surprised. It's, it's funny because uh, that is such a true statement within the growth as a line cook to a, to a sous, to a chef. And then you get to a point when you're the chef, you're like, I want to be the chef owner. And once you're the chef owner, you're like, fuck, man, I just want to be the dishwasher again. I want to do some simple <laughs> right? stuff. Right? Yeah. Right? You want to hit the reset button once you get to the top, right? <laughs> uh, 100%. All right. A little bit uh, on Jose. Tell us some – give us some dirt, some goofy shit, some funny stuff, some stuff you had to break habits or anything like that uh, – I'll just tell you straight up. I'll tell you straight up. Jose's a little gangster, man. He, he's just like, yeah, he, he's got a little little gangster in him, which I always loved. I always loved that. Like, you know, East Coast, like he's, he's very East Coast. He, he grew up, you know, in the city. Like, he's got that, he's got that mentality. He's, he, you know, he's a hustler. And, uh, like, I, I always loved that about him. He, he was just like, oh, let's see. I got, I got a pretty funny story. Uh, we were going to visit um, a farm before we, like, per se, we had a fire and it shut us down for a little while um, before we actually really opened. So we had some free time. And one of the things we did is set up some field trips. And I had set up a field trip for us to go visit a couple farms. So we had a few trips, but there's one story that sticks out, um, which is, uh, we had been in my hometown drinking with a couple friends of mine and we were going from place to place. And, uh, we had a car that we couldn't all fit in and we had another person joined our group. So Jose, I think was the first one to be like, I'll get in the trunk. I'm not afraid. And that kid went in the trunk and we drove where we're going and we opened the trunk and he popped out like, all right, let's go, man. So he's just, I mean, a, he's just, just a gamer, huh? He just is. Yeah, he's always been that way. I love the guy to death, man. Uh, that's great. It's the, it's the Queens graffiti artist uh, with that strong mother figure of the, the immigrant family. I mean, it's, it's 
classic. Yeah, dude, he's got all that going on. He's just life. got he's got a lot of sw- he's got a ton of swagger, man. Just a ton of swagger. That's great. Yeah, having cooked with him, I could see that. Now you, you can tell he's got that swagger still, but it's soft spoken, right? It's that right. Well, you know that's what happens when you become the boss, right? You learn you learn to you learn to cool everything down because now you got to take care of everybody. That's that's the game. That's the game. Well, Josh, really appreciate talking with us. Uh, thank you for mentoring somebody like Jose. He's got amazing restaurants in Cincinnati. Your leadership and the leadership of so many in our industry throughout the years has led to just an unbelievable food scene all across the city. Nobody ever would have thought that over the Rhine in Cincinnati would be such a burgeoning little food neighborhood, but it's cool to see because you took an interest in somebody like Jose and we need to see more of that. So yeah, I'm, so, pr- I'm so proud. I'm so proud of him. So proud. So proud of him. Every time I read something or see something that he's doing, I'm just so proud. He's he killing it. He's gonna, it. And he he's going to break it. through with that, uh, that James Beard any day now. Oh yeah. I know he's been working on that for a while, but whatever. That's just a, you know, that's just, you know, popularity contest. He doesn't need that shit. Yeah. He needs the guests and the, the internal and external well, guests. And you can see that energy when you're there in Cincinnati. His team is behind him. The city's behind Good. him. Oh, I hope for the best. I just, you know, I have, I have a whole other opinion about those kind of things. That's a whole other podcast as well. We got a few lines. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> Josh, appreciate your time and keep cooking, my friend. Thank you very much. I appreciate you uh, having me on your show. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.